The reading is from Isaiah, chapter 54, verses 1 to 3, and it's headed, The Future Glory of Zion. Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy. You who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. And descendants will dispossess nations and settled in their desolate cities. This is the word of the Lord. The next reading is from Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. The Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. I've never seen the film Wally, but it was amazing just watching that clip. Thank you so much. And that whole sense of human beings having forgotten who they are. And as we've been travelling through the book of Isaiah, we've been taking various chunks, but there's been this dominant theme that's been coming through everything that we've been thinking about and looking at, that God's people have forgotten who they are. They've forgotten who they are as God's children, and they've forgotten their purpose. And the tragedy that that means, and it almost, in a silly way, brought it to life in Wally, that humans have forgotten who they are. You know, the, the guy in the kind of head quarters looking at the the old video of of people dancing and asking what a hoedown is. Humans are designed to dance and to have fun and to be joyful and they've forgotten, don't even understand the language of it anymore. That whole sense of not living as they are meant to be living. God's people in the book of Isaiah are experiencing something very, very similarly. And we've seen how that's played out in different ways. Last week, um, David preached on Isaiah 53. And there's a lot in there about suffering, about sacrifice. Deep theology in that. And I think many of you will have gone away and wanted to read more about that. And that whole sense of looking forward to what Jesus was coming to do. But um, chapter 54 then opens with a different picture It's moved from that sense of of suffering and now we have a picture of abundance and healing. But they go together. You can't have one without the other. We only get chapter 54 because of chapter 53. The suffering servant suffers on behalf of the nation. And because the suffering servant suffers, the nation is then able to be healed and restored 
and to go back to being the nation it is designed to be. And so we have this picture that is very, very different of more of growth, of healing, of what is possible. And if we carried on through the chapter, we would have seen even more about that. We would have seen a rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. And we would have seen a promise of posterity and righteousness for God's people for eternity. The Bible likes to use images because it helps us. And we have to think, what would these images have meant to the people who were hearing this at the time? So it opens in slightly strange ways. Sing, O barren woman. Where on earth has that come from? What on earth is being meant there? Well, to God's people, to the Jews... Sarah was the archetypal barren woman. She represented something and was known as the barren woman. Sarah was the wife of Abraham. And God had made a promise to Abraham. God had promised Abraham that he would have descendants that would multiply and there would be many, many nations. At the time, he and Sarah had no children and they were very old. And the potential of having children seemed impossible. And yet... We know the story. Sarah became pregnant, had Isaac, and so the prophecy and the promise and the covenant could be developed and continued. So this is reminding God's people of that initial promise of what God had said his intention was. He would develop and grow multiple nations and they would be blessed through Abraham's line. And that would come through Sarah giving birth to Isaac. So immediately they're saying, yes, we've heard this before. We've seen this happen before. God has promised this and it's come to be. We've forgotten that. And we're living as if we don't believe God's promises anymore. So that image comes right at the very beginning. Again, if we'd carried on, we would see other references back to earlier in the Old Testament. In verse 5. God uses language to describe himself. He's making a promise. The barren woman will not be lonely anymore. She will find fruitfulness. Her maker will be her husband. God will be her husband. The Lord Almighty, the Holy One of Israel, is your Redeemer. And we think of the word Redeemer as in terms of Jesus because we look at it from our historical perspective and we look back to Jesus as being the Redeemer and we think of the Redeemer as Jesus dying on the cross to redeem us from our sins. Isaiah's listeners would have thought something slightly different. There was a term, kinsman redeemer, that we read about in the book of Ruth. Ruth and Boaz talk about this idea of kinsman redeemer. And this word to Old Testament, um, God's people in the Old Testament, was the traditional role, which meant that this particular person bore the family responsible responsibility for rescuing the relative in need. The kinsman redeemer had a responsibility to rescue a relative in need. So again, these images will be going through God's people. God will be rescuing those in need. And then a little bit further on again in verse 9, there's reference to Noah. And that, for God's people again, would remind them of the covenant that God made with Noah. Really important promises. A covenant is this promise with two sides to it. God said to Noah, never again will I cover the earth with water after the flood. But the part on God's people was to be true to who they were. 
And they would be remembering God made these promises. He made this covenant with us. And we haven't been taking our part of our side of it. But nonetheless, the suffering servant will have made a sacrifice in order to put things back onto that that level keel that God will be able to work again through his people to fulfill his purposes. And what are his purposes? To be a blessing to all nations. The fruitfulness in our image will be children. Lots and lots and lots of children. And so we have our first extension here. Don't limit your house. Get ready. Prepare. Strengthen it. Reinforce it. There's going to be lots of people around. I see David Merritt here just thinking of building and that whole sense of building out. Get ready. You've got to do something as well as God's promising, but actually God's people, you've got to be ready. Enlarge the space of your tent. It's such a lovely image and such a bizarre one suddenly to find in the middle of the Bible. Prepare. Get ready. Extend because God is going to do great things. Can you see how it's twofold? God will do it, but we've got to play our part as well. And so they had to be ready to extend, to bring on all these others who would be blessed through God. William Carey was a Baptist missionary um, in 1700 and something. I'd never heard of him until I was doing a little bit of research on this passage. And he was very firmly attached to this passage and to those verses about enlarging the place of your tent. And he used them as his life verses, the verses by which he chose to develop his own Christian journey. And he was living at a time where, um, bizarrely, mission was no longer on the agenda. It had been there before, and people had gone out and, and taken the gospel elsewhere. But at this particular time, the feeling was that that wasn't the right thing to do. That what was written scripturally was written for its time. So the Great Commission that we had read, which comes at the end of Matthew, with that command to go and make disciples of all nations, the current thinkers of the day were saying that that was only relevant to the disciples who heard it. So to the 11 disciples there at the time would be given a command to go and do it, but it didn't refer to anybody else to do. And so mission had stopped. But William Carey, deep in his heart, felt there was something wrong with this. He researched, he realised the history, particularly the Puritan missionaries, and this urge in his heart that this wasn't right got stronger and stronger. And so he would preach and speak about it. And it didn't go down very well. One of his contemporaries um, retorted this to him. He, He said, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid and mine. In other words, stop thinking big about yourself. God will do it. He doesn't need to use us. And how much more our thinking has changed from then. But William Carey carried on with what he believed to be right. And he established a mission society that came to be known now as the Baptist Mission Society. He spent 41 years in India taking the gospel out, seeing conversions, translating the Bible, offering education and encouraging social reform. And as well as holding on to those verses in Isaiah as the basis of of what he was doing, he developed a motto. And his motto was this, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. 
So expect God to do wonderful things, but also be prepared to work and do great things for him. What an amazing motto to go through life with. And he saw that come to be. He saw God do amazing things, but he also was willing to do a lot for God. It all kind of takes us now to thinking, what on earth does this mean for us? I was chatting to Kia earlier on, and um, Kia said, are you leading? I said, no, I'm preaching. I said, I'm not entirely sure where it's going. And she kind of jaw-dropped. And, and there's a sense in which I wasn't before I started. That sense of what God is wanting to say to us today is never 100% clear. It might not even be clear as I, as I kind of tussle with what I think he's saying at the moment. But what I think we need to be challenged by is to hold on to this motto, to hold on to the picture of broadening our horizons, of taking off the blinkers, whichever image helps the most, to remember who we are and to get back to being who we are and to see God do some amazing things amongst us and for us to be involved with him in doing some great things. And it's challenging for a whole host of reasons. It's challenging because I think it's very easy to limit who God is. We come on a Sunday, we sing some wonderful songs of God's majesty, his splendor, we look around at the glory of creation, and we are in awe. And we sing of that, I stand in awe of you. And then we wake up on a Monday morning, we're late, the alarm hasn't gone off, We've got to rush around getting ready for work or school. Children are still in bed. Burn the toast. And suddenly, we've forgotten that we live with a mighty God. And life doesn't help us remember who God is. And this isn't meant as a criticism. This is just the reality. And I think we've first got to understand the reality of what is going on. Life isn't conducive to praising God and remembering who he is. We get busy We get stuck in traffic. We're late home from work. It rains and we haven't got our umbrella. Whatever it is, it is so difficult to remember who God is. Even more so, it's difficult to actually enlarge our understanding of who God is. Because we only get to understand God more and more the more we walk with him the more we step out of our comfort zone. It's almost easier, perhaps, to box him, and it's safer. It's a bit challenging sometimes to think, well, if this, then that, and what about this, and what about that? And actually, brain space doesn't often allow us to do that. We need to keep remembering that God is beyond our wildest imagination, bigger than we can imagine. I can't use language to describe the greatness, the majesty, the splendor of who God is. He is sovereign over all, Lord of the universe, and yet knows every single little thing about me. It almost blows our minds, but we have to keep somehow coming back to who our mighty, majestic, glorious, splendid God is. And I don't know how we do that. Perhaps by putting space into our day. Perhaps by stopping at various points and remembering. Perhaps by looking up rather than looking down at our feet. Where we used to live in Guildford, I was on the school walk every day. 
And if I looked up, I could see the downs. But I didn't see them every day because most of the time I was rushing along like this. And that's just a picture. But it's something about changing our perspective. Putting into place things that help us change our perspective. So we keep looking at who God is and saying, I want to know more of you. And if that's through reading or through study or going on conferences or time in prayer or time in silent reflection or lighting a candle, whatever it is, we need to keep remembering who God is and come to him in awe and bow down before him and just hold on to that majesty and splendour. We also need to want to be involved with him. Because it's easy for us to forget our purpose as individuals and as people. God wants us to dance. He wants us to hear his music. And this is often um, an image that is used by some Christian writers to talk about God playing a tune. There's a wonderful DVD by Rob Bell where there's an orchestra playing and Rob Bell speaks over and he says, it's hearing God's tune throughout all of our lives and joining in with it. What's your part in the tune? Are you the the cello? Are you the violin? Are you the triangle that might just have a tiny little bit, but without it, the piece can't work? It doesn't matter where we are, but we all have our place in God's tune. And we need to hear that tune and find our place and take our place and participate with God in what he is doing as individuals and as a church. And what will that look like? We can't sit down here and describe what it would look like. We might have some pictures. Well, it could be like this, it could be like that. But it only comes into being as we do it. As we join in the tune, it plays and it grows and it develops. And we're taken along by the Spirit not on our whims, but through the power of the Spirit. We join in this tune, and the Spirit continues to play it, and it becomes something different to where it started. And it will carry on. It will go quiet, and then there'll be a big fanfare. But it will move and change, because we're being taken along by the Spirit, and we find our part in that But we can think about what it might look like. I got this last month through one of the organizations that sends me things. And it was talking about a very similar thing. It says that Jesus came to show us what life in the kingdom looked like, not to modify how the world did things. And there's something about being God's people that means that we we play our part in bringing about God's kingdom here on earth. Not to change what things are, but to, to bring to bring in a fresh, to bring in a new. And it might mean some things we have to stand up and change. But we play our part, and as we play our part, God's kingdom reigns here on earth. But what sorts of things might we need to think about as churches? The challenge here, four challenges. We need to create a prophetic community. Isaiah was a prophet, speaking out, not always popularly, but speaking out and saying this is how it needs to be so that that new way of being could come. And the writer here says that the early Christian community wasn't shaped by culture and values of their context, but rather as they lived in the power of the Spirit, 
They brought the promise of the future renewal of creation into the present moment. This is the prophetic life to which the Spirit continues to call us and for which he empowers us. To bring the promise of the future renewal of creation into the present moment. Isn't that wonderful? We read about and we dream about the future glory. And yet there's something about it coming now in the present moment that the Spirit will empower us and call us to be involved in. We need to be a prophetic people that is saying there is another way, God's way. We need to be a missional community. William Carey's contemporaries were wrong. We are called to be good news in the world in which we're in. Jesus saw the whole of his life as living out the mission purposes of the Father. Mission was his heartbeat, the focus of all that he was, said and did. This is the way into which he calls his community to live with that constant mission focus of the Father and to walk the way of service and self-giving. We need to be a missional community. Thirdly, we need to be a discipled and a discipling community. And here's the challenge. So frequently today, discipleship is seen solely in terms of becoming good church members. And again, that's the blinkers. How often do we limit our understanding of what it means to be a good disciple within a church context? We need to recognize afresh that it's learning to be part of a community that is enabling every member not to be shaped by the culture of the present age, but rather by the promise of the new creation. How do I live as God's child in a world that isn't necessarily living that way? That's what it means to be a disciple. Discipling is a whole life challenge and takes the whole of life, both in years and understanding. We need to be a church that is really very focused on being discipled and discipling. Helping one another be God's children in often very difficult places. And then finally, we need to be a community with imagination, creativity and innovation. The Spirit's call is for Christian communities to be radical in the sense of going back to our roots and discovering afresh the Lord's calling and purpose. This will require us to be bold and courageous, to take risks and explore the new possibilities and ways which the Spirit is opening up to us. In many ways, it's not about freshening up the church, but rather a moment of metamorphosis when the earthbound caterpillar is transformed and flies as the beautiful butterfly. Again, a lovely, lovely picture. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. What is God asking of us today? To remember who he is and to remember who we are and to be bold, and to be courageous, to spark our imagination, to dance, to join the tune that the Spirit is playing, to come alongside, to move, to grow, to change. It won't always be easy. But as we do that, we know God better, and our understanding of him grows, and we can expect more and more of him. And as we work with him, the joy in coming alongside him, develops and increases. And so, like William Carey, we want to do more and more for him. 
I have found this really challenging in my own life because it's easy to just accept where we are at this moment in time and think, I'm doing quite a lot. Are you asking more of me, Lord? And it's not a burden. It's more about rediscovering him and rediscovering who I am as his child. And that's a joy. That is a gift. And we raise our eyes and we expect great things from a great God. And we long to do great things for him as he empowers us to do that. Amen.